Let's pray together. We'll ask God to bless us, and then we'll look into Psalm 27. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us today. We thank you, Lord, that we can call upon you and we can have confidence thinking, Lord, about faith and what it means to us, how important it is for us to reach out and grasp your promises and apply them to our lives. And we think of that scripture from the Old Testament that says, great is thy faithfulness. We claim that here today, Lord. Stand by us, meet with us, help us in our hour of need, give us the opportunity to listen into God's word in such a way that each of us profits from it, And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I pray, Father, that you will bless those now that are caring for our children in junior church, those also that are helping in the nurseries, and then, Father, here in the auditorium as we look into God's word. And, uh, Lord, as folks listen in, perhaps online or on other occasions, I just pray, Lord, that you may find usefulness in your kingdom and in the hearts of your people for the message you've given me today. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Seek ye my face, and the psalmist responds, thy face, Lord, will I seek. This week I was doing exactly that, seeking the Lord, trying to determine what would be the message that God would have me to bring this Sunday. Normally I don't take a lot of time to talk about that. Usually it's fairly easy to figure out because it's the next message in the series that God has given me to bring. I actually have that message prepared and just decided it wasn't the message for this morning. And another message I think I alluded to on Sunday evenings, hindering revival part two, just didn't feel like it was the message for this particular service. Probably bring both of those messages as God leads in the future, but not this morning. This morning, the thing that has really been on my heart and that I have been asking God and praying for God's leadership about is that really this is the last public opportunity that I have to speak to you before the Will Galkin Evangelistic team is here with us next Sunday morning. We, of course, have a special program tonight, so we'll enjoy that. On Wednesday evening, we have a special presentation from our Master Club kids, as Pastor Adam referred to. So I don't have either one of those services And I was praying to God, what is it that you want me to say to the people? What is on my heart that you have given me to say to the people this morning? And I came to this psalm, and I came to this verse. When thou saidst, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. I think you have David reminding us of a very simple lesson and exemplifying it in his own life. And that is simply this. If we want God to hear us when we cry, then shouldn't we be willing for, to hear God when he cries out to us? You may want to notice how that turn of thought comes because if you back up to verse number 7, you see David calling upon God. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. There's David's cry to God. If we want God to be willing to hear us when we cry, shouldn't we be willing to hear God when he cries out to us? And the psalmist says in that verse, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. So you sense desperation here. You see the psalmist desperately asking God to hear and answer his prayer. And then you you find him coming back to God in the next verse, showing good faith, showing his genuineness, showing his honesty. When he says this, when thou saidst, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. There are two simple thoughts this morning, and they come exactly from those phrases as I've given them to you. And the first of them is our cry to God. Our cry to God. You ever cry out to God? In the word cry is, as I said earlier, a sense of desperation. You're really in earnest. This is not something you're fooling around about. This is not just sort of mouthing off, mumbling out some prayers because you're supposed to have a prayer time. This is something where God is speaking to your heart and you look at a need in your life and you cry out to God because there's a desire there, a definite, real, deep desire that God will listen in to you when you cry and that God will hear your prayer. As Coach Voorhees called our attention to, this is a psalm of David. And so we think about the psalm. We look for context. We look to see the background, the picture. What's going on in the psalm that caused David to have such earnestness in his cry out to God? 
We find him in difficult circumstances and we find so many of the Psalms which is one of the reasons that we turn to the Psalms so often in our times of desperation because the Psalms so often were written about human experience. And as you know, the Psalms were the hymn book of Israel. So think how often our hearts are nourished and blessed when we get out our own hymn book and we're able to relate some story. We're able to tell the background of how it was that this particular song came about, what God was doing, the circumstances that were in the life of the author. And so often that song then becomes so much more enriching to us as we think about the circumstances that the writer was in when he called out to God and then penned the words of songs that we enjoy today. This is the same thing, beloved, that is going on in the Psalms, and we need to realize this. Well, if we're looking for a very general way to summarize the difficulties that David had, you could find a phrase in verse number five because he says here, for in the time of trouble, any trouble in your life? Well, I don't mean trouble with the law. That's trouble, all right. Trouble of a different kind. But I mean any trouble in your life. And I think right away that all of us can identify this because we have our times of trouble. It seems like we never escape them. We never get rid of them. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to get to the place where we were so like Jesus and we'd been so yielded to God and being conformed to the image of his son that God didn't have to keep pruning and working in our lives and sending along these times of testing and trial so that in our times of trouble and in our desperation we would cry out to God. But I can't say that, can you? Obviously, if God is working, it must mean that I have room to improve. Obviously, if God is bringing circumstances into my life, into your life, it must mean that God loves me so much that having redeemed me, he wants to work more and more and more to accomplish that transformation that we're told about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 as we look into that glass beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being changed from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm excited to know that God is at work and it's not just the human agencies around me. That it's God who overrules and rules in all of those things. Well, you can identify various troubles that seem to have been generated in this psalm by David's perennial problem. That's how I, I often describe it because you read the psalms and if you're looking for something that you could call David's perennial problem, what do you think it would be? Enemies. I mean, David had enemies. Where do we see this? Well, let me point out to you verse number two. You'll find that exact word there. When the wicked, even mine enemies, he says, and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh. They stumbled and fell. Down in verse six, we find a reference again. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Enemies. Think about this for a moment. Think about David. What do you know about the life of David? I mean from beginning almost to end. David had enemies. It starts out with Goliath. That's a big one right off the bat. Do you suppose that God sent the experience of Goliath along in the life of David early, right at the very outset, to cause David to have a lesson in his life that he would never, ever forget and that he would never get away from. And that is, that day he went out there as a teenager, clad in simple shepherd's garments, and with that sling in his hand and those five stones in that pouch that he carried, he was big enough to take a man on who was over nine feet tall and had all kinds of armaments. He found out something that day about what it was like to be in the time of trouble, about the fact that God can be counted on, that God's promises are true, that God is faithful. And he had these problems. Sooner or later, it was Saul and the, the warfare and all the difficulties that came along with Saul chasing him and and Saul became his enemy. The Bible tells us that and sought him every day because Saul regarded him as an adversary and Saul regarded him as a competitor to the throne. Saul was unwilling to accept the fact that God had disqualified him, that God was going to replace him and so he chased David and he chased David and he tried to kill him. I'd say that's a pretty good description of an enemy. Do you know even when David became king and consolidated not just the, the victories and the kingship that he had in Judah, but 
in the north and he became king over a united kingdom as Saul had been and he had consolidated all of that completely. Do you know he still had enemies? You ought to just read the psalm to, to read and know that even when it seemed like he should have had peace, even when it seemed like the wars with Israel and the conquest of territory were, those things were over and that he should have around him an atmosphere of peace, no, he still had enemies. He had them on the inside. He talks about the man who was his familiar friend, the man who lifted up his heel against him. He had people who betrayed him. He had his own son who turned against him. He had his friend and counselor, a man by the name of Ahithophel, turn against him. All throughout the course of David's life, he had enemies, troubles with enemies. And then, if you read towards the end of the story, the giants are back. Do you remember this? You get to the end of the story and the giants are back. Not Goliath, he's long since dead. But the giants are back. There are the progeny of Goliath and David goes out one time in battle to face those people and the age has caught up with him and he waxes faint in battle, the Bible tells us. Someone else steps in and deals with the giant. But you know, folks, the battles are there. The battles are there from the day, unfortunately, I have to tell you the truth, the battles are there from the day you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior until the time God calls you home or Jesus comes. And if you don't have anybody today that you know is an enemy, well, you can thank God for that. Maybe you just don't know you have them. Or certainly if we can't contemplate that and don't have someone at work or someone at school or someone in some other place who just seems to give us a hard time all the time, who just seems dead against us, if we don't have that that comes to mind, well, I can tell you one thing. We have a spiritual adversary. Your adversary, the devil, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Peter tells us in chapter 5, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, the perennial problem, enemies, David had it. If you can't identify with that, then I know something else. You've got your own problems, don't you? And this is one of the things that's the genius of reading the Psalms because you can read about this and read about this in the life of David and you can kind of become a little bit, doesn't he ever quit talking about these enemies? Doesn't he ever quit talking about these enemies? Well, beloved, look, have some sympathy with him. He's talking about the thing that was in his life. You have something in your life doesn't have to be the exact circumstance that David had. You have those things that cause you to feel like you're going through times of trouble, deep waters, difficult problems. And David was at the point where there were some things that he desperately wanted from God. As I say, you have this note of desperation in verse number seven. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. I see four things that I would quickly like to point out to you. First of all, I think that David was seeking reassurance in a time of fear. All we have to do is look at verse number one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You have any fears in your life? Sure you do. We just more often than not call them by a different name. We call them worries. We call them anxieties. And we have them. Each of us has them. And I'm telling you something right now. Those things constitute a battle. You are going to have a battle with those things. And if you have a period of calm and peace in your life right now where you don't have any particular situations and you don't have any particular fears or anxieties, thank the Lord and enjoy the day. There's probably one around the corner just seems like the way it works. Verse number three, though, he talks about confidence, and I think that's the great thing that we can know. In all of this, when we have these problems, when we have these anxieties, when we have these fears, whether they are literal-style enemies or it's something else that constitutes our time of trouble, he comes to the end of this verse and he says, though an host should camp against me. In other words, no matter how great the problem is that you're experiencing, my heart shall not fear, though war should rise against me. In this will I be confident. I just don't know where I'd be, do you? In my Christian experience, 
If I couldn't keep coming back to that, couldn't keep coming back to that, couldn't keep coming back to the fact that I can have confidence in God. I don't have much confidence in man, I'll tell you that right now. But I have confidence in God. God has never failed me, and he has never forsaken me. He promised that in his word. I will never leave thee nor forsake me. God has never failed to meet a need that I have. God has stood by me through all my days, and I call upon him now. And I trust in him now to stand upon by me for every single day I have left on this earth. I believe his promises. I trust in his word. It says being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Wrap your heart and mind around that one time. We are confident, Paul says. I say, and rather to be absent from the body and to be will and to be present with the Lord. When that day approaches, if Jesus tarries, can you have confidence? You say, I don't know. Don't worry about it. You aren't there yet. At least I hope not. I mean, I don't know what this afternoon holds. But you won't worry about dying grace, or you shouldn't until you get there, but you can know God's promise is true, and you can know that when you get to that particular circumstance, and when it comes in your life, you can have absolute confidence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. No, I won't have anxiety even then. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And even if I have enemies... Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of those enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And do I have confidence? Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell. Not I hope so, not I might. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Bring it on. We can trust in God. David was looking for that reassurance. So often we waver. We can have that confidence, but we have to keep coming back. We have to keep coming back. We have to keep coming back. We have to go to church. We have to do other things. We have to listen to songs to keep bringing those things back that we have known from the beginning. Or am I just different? No, I think we are all like that. We know it, but we need to be reminded Secondly, protection in the time of trouble. Look at verse 5. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Protection in the time of trouble. Verse 12. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. Protect me, O Lord, from those people who would do me harm. Protect me, O Lord, from circumstances in which the evil one would sing, seek to bring harm, spiritual harm to me. David was a man of warfare. David was a man of sold, uh, soldiering. Do we not, even if we look at that image, are we not able to understand how much it would mean to be confident of God's protection and God's presence with us. Thirdly, he was looking for help in a time of need. Look at verse number nine. Hide not thy face from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. There's my word. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Take a tape recording sometime, except the fact most of the time you're, you're praying in your not out loud. Some people pray out loud. You can do that, especially, I guess, if you get in the habit of doing that. I find I distract myself half the time. But most of the time, that doesn't work for me, and it works for me if I'm driving the car because I'm sure not going to close my eyes. But I, I just would be amazed, really, sometime when I get to glory, except sometimes my prayers are so pitiful, I, I just I forget where I am, I stammer around, I lose my train of thought. But I know one thing. If there were a tape recording of how many times I had uttered a cry for help, how many times I had just prayed, 
Lord, help. How many times I prayed for other people, Lord, help them. It's a cry, isn't it? It's a statement of dependence. It's an understanding that in and of yourself, you don't have the juice. You can't make it on your own. You need God's help. It was a time of need, and I'm thankful for promises in the Bible that remind us that God is faithful to do that. We are to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. Whence cometh my help? No, not from the hills. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He prayed fourthly for strength or was desperate for strength in a time of weariness. Verses 13 and 14. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I was there to visit Winnie Oberman yesterday. Kind of have the habit, if I go there, I always just share the verse that I'm going to preach on Sunday. When I sign her book, I write the verse. So I read this verse, and then I said, but, you know, I don't think I can leave this psalm without reading you some verses that you know even better than the one I just read you, which was verse number eight. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be at the side of a saint of God like that, who has treasured the word of God her entire life. And to read verses from the Bible and all of a sudden to see them nod their head, lip sync some of the words with you because they know it. They have hidden God's word in their heart and that that word of God is there when they need it. Well, these last verses, I don't like them, do you? Because it's got that wait word in it. I'm not talking about the stuff that's here. I think that's easier to deal with, and that's not easy. You try to lose five pounds. It's not easy, is it? How many people have started a diet and quit? About everybody in the room. And the young folks that haven't done that yet, you know why? Because your metabolism is still running wide open. Wait till that changes. And wait till you can't run whatever your exercise was like you used to run. Those types of things. And boy, it's a struggle. It really is a struggle. That kind of weight, I'd rather struggle with that than this kind of weight here. This is W-A-I-T. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's tough. But we come to wait on God. We come to trust in God. We come to express That prayer to God that we will find strength. Otherwise, you notice the word faint. He said, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Can you identify with this? Feeling weary at times in your life? I was thinking this week. I've referred to the book on many occasions. I I doubt seriously that many people in here would have much reason to read it. But if you were, I mean, you could very well read it without being a minister. Don't worry about that. But there was a a book written a number of years ago by C.H. Spurgeon. And as you know, of course, Spurgeon had the pastor's college. He started that. It's really interesting. This is a rabbit trail. It's really interesting how many people will try to use Spurgeon as an example of, well, you don't need to prepare. He didn't have any formal education till you turn around and see that, you know, there are exceptions to every rule. Spurgeon felt so strongly about the need to prepare that he started the pastor's college. Well, then, the book is written. It's called Lectures to My Students. It's wonderful to read that book. You couldn't have been there, no. Too long ago, you and I weren't living at that time. We weren't in the pastor's college, so we didn't hear the great prince of preachers tell other preachers who were training how to go about their life as a minister. And in the book, he has a chapter that I've read many a time. It's called The Minister's Fainting Fits. It's all of us, beloved. Ministers aren't exempt. 
It's all of us who have these times when we would have fainted unless we had waited, waited on God for him to show his hand and to prove his faithfulness and to work in hearts. Can you identify with this? You feel weak and weary and Maybe that's just about the time that God can use you. You know, I think I might have mentioned recently that this quotation from Hudson Taylor, when he said, it seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work, and when he at last found me, he said, he is weak enough, he'll do. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. True. Our cry to God, let's talk about God's cry to us. This is our second thought this morning. From verse 7, we move to verse 8, and we have David reaffirming this principle. Hear, O Lord, he says in his prayer, verse 7, when I cry with my voice. What about when God cries with his voice? What will David's position be? Will God just sort of be like a Coke machine? where you have a thirst and you, so you want the Coke and so you go put your money in and the Coke comes out and you walk away from the machine and you don't need the machine anymore because you got the hit. The liquid hit, the caffeine hit, whatever it was you were after, you got it. You put your money in, you got what you wanted and you're long gone. Is that how we treat God? I'm afraid it is a lot of the time. David says, I'm not doing that, God. I cry to you. I'm desperate. I seek things from you. I will be honest. I will be genuine. Verse 8, when thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. This is David not trying to earn his way into God's favor, but simply trying to pour out a heart of genuineness, simply trying to reassure God that he had no intention of being that type of person who just comes and asks, get what, gets what he wants, and then is long gone and, has, long gone and has no real time for God in his life. And David said, Lord, I'm not going to be that way. It's hypocritical to be that way. You may recall the story of the man who was the court preacher for Louis XIV of France in the 17th century. The king didn't know this, but there came a Sunday. There was a Sunday coming, and the court preacher announced that the king would not be there. And so he, the king showed up at the chapel for the regular services. No one else was there but the king and whatever people were with him. And the preacher, he demanded of Francois Fenelon, he demanded of him, what does this mean? The court preacher responded, I had published that you would not come to church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. David said to God, I don't want to be that way. He reaffirmed really by his own life and in what he says in these words, a principle that we find in the New Testament in 1 John 3.22 where John gives us one of those conditions for answered prayer. And he says, and, who's, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Beloved, this is not o- obedience in exchange for blessing in the sense that we earn God's favor. No, this is simply reaffirming to God the principle that we find all throughout his word that Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings conflict. There are many times and many ways that we can seek God. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. We seek God, and God speaks to us when we read his word and pray. That's called personal worship. This past week, let me just ask you, how much time did you spend in personal worship? You know, you don't have to just confine that to this time you set apart. Really, you can worship God throughout the day if you walk with him. This is really what it means to pray without ceasing. 
but the foundation of it is the time that we dedicate to God, the time that we set apart, the time that we say to God, okay, I'm gonna meet with you so that you can speak to me, so that you can prepare me for this day. And I'm telling you, I understand that schedules are difficult and that some people work different shifts, and I understand all of that. You have never found me to be unflexible in what I have had to say about this. So you have to find something that works for you. Only I can tell you, if you can do it, it works best to meet with God in the morning. It works best to be with God before you're with other people. It works best to be with God when it's quiet, when there aren't distractions. I told my wife the other day, now we're kind of enough into this daylight savings time that the little fringe benefit that we got when it shifted and we got a little more darkness in the morning, it's like that's getting away from us now. It's getting lighter earlier and earlier and earlier. Well, if we'd have stayed on standard time, that would have happened too. But you know what? What I'm really talking about is my own personal cocoon. That I just like it when it's dark outside. I like it in the early morning. And you can call me a party pooper, but I'm, I don't like it when those birds start up. Not when I'm trying to have my personal devotions. They can start up all they want after that. But now they start up during them. And I get one outside the window. And I'm glad for him to be happy. But I just want that time. And the darkness just helps to envelop me in a sense that, you know, the day hasn't gotten started. People are not around. Nothing's playing. My texts are not going off. My phone is not ringing. And I can just meet with God. And I can read his word and ask him to speak to me. And I can pray and I can tell him what's on my heart. And I can ask him to speak to me in prayer. Well, now we've come to the second Sunday in April, so maybe it's a good time to have a little checkup. You know, in December, we started putting the Bible calendars out so that people could get some kind of a, a way to systematically read to God's Word. You don't have to use those. You may have something else that works for you. But you know, it's really good to have something that works. So I know I shouldn't ask you this question, but I will anyway. How are you doing with that? One of those plans, you got one of those plans to read the Bible and you made maybe a commitment that you would read some each day or maybe you made a commitment to try to read the New Testament this year or maybe the Old Testament this year or the whole Bible this year or something like that. I hope you did. How you doing? Don't worry if you miss a day. It's going to happen to everybody. You just have to get right back up and keep on going. But could we identify for a moment with the type of person that just comes to God when he's got a problem and is never really available to God on a consistent basis. And David says, I'm not going to be that way, Lord. God speaks to us when we come to church. That's called corporate worship. And you can talk about, you can worship God in your tree stand, and you can. I'm glad. I've done it a many an hour. You notice I said hour. Some people talk about they can worship God on the golf course. Well, I guess you could if you're playing by yourself. I'm not quite sure how you would do that if you're in a foursome or something like that. It'd be a little distracting, wouldn't it? All kinds of excuses. It'll be boat season soon, and soon the traffic going to the lake will exceed the traffic going to church. And there'll be people who say something like this, well, you know, I feel closer to God out there than I do in the church. Well, find a different church. Find one where you sense God's presence. Or just quit making excuses. Because don't we all know that this is God's appointment that we're keeping today, that this is not just the invention of some man when I stand up here and preach, it's not just because that's what they pay me to do, that this is my job. You can't pay me enough to do this. No, I come to church and realize, as I have over the years, that everything you find in your bulletin from the welcome to the closing prayer is explained 
and indicated in the Bible as part of our worship. And some of those things you can do on your own at home and some you can't. You can't welcome each other at home. The Bible talks about encouraging one another and exhorting one another and so much the more as the day approaches and you don't get that sitting at home. You get that when you fellowship with other Christian people and thank God it's not restricted to just being in corporate worship. We go after church to McDonald's or we go some other place and we meet with Christian people because iron sharpens iron and so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend and we're encouraged and we're blessed by being around other people and realizing that we're not walking down that road by ourselves, that other people are there with us, struggling just like we're struggling. But we come to church and then we hear the music. I had to dab my eyes this morning. It happens all the time. We sing the songs. And my heart becomes so enmeshed with the message of that song that it brings tears to my eyes. I can't get that at home. I can sing at home. It's another reason why you want to meet with God before others are around. I listen to people pray. I can pray at home. But I can't listen to other people pray at home unless I'm just listening in on a service or something like that. I like to listen to other people pray. Do you? Especially godly people that are walking with the Lord and struggling just like I'm struggling. I, I like to listen to their prayers. I shouldn't call someone out. But a couple of Wednesdays ago, I prayed with the major. And I listened to him pray on and on about the, the men he's responsible for and the command that he has. And I listened to his burden for those guys. And I thought, wow, I don't pray for him enough. He's got a big responsibility. I like to listen to people pray. I like to look because it evidences their walk with God when you listen to them pray. I like to participate in the giving. It's a blessing to my heart to know that there's some little old small part of what God has given to me I can give back to Him. Like the kid with five loaves and two fish. There is a lad. I might not have much, but have something. If I give it to God, what might he do with it? That excites me. That encourages me. I can't honestly say that I've ever had much struggle with giving. I know some people do. And I'm sure that I could under the right circumstances just like smoking doesn't tempt me, but I'm sure under the right circumstances, maybe it could. Doesn't really tempt me to keep back what belongs to God from him. Not tempted by that. I've seen God bless too many times. I know it's the way of faithfulness. I know it's what he wants me to do. It's all his anyway. It's understanding as you go along in your life that you know there's a bag and you've got 10 tenths in that bag and God can put a lot of holes in that bag so that it all leaks out like sand if you're not faithful with your finances. I don't want to go there. These are all part of the things that we do when we meet in corporate worship. These ladies sang to us a while ago. Well, you can listen to recordings at home, but there's something different about being here and looking in their faces. And hearing the instruments, and I, it's, look, don't get mad at me. I'm not against this when circumstances warrant it and you don't have anything better you can do, but it's another reason why I would prefer to hear the instruments play and not a recording. I think there's more. You can get something from the other, but there's more. I'll really step out on a thin plank. You might want to consider sitting closer if you can't see their faces. 
You don't know what you're losing. You don't know what you're losing. You know, why does the preacher every Sunday leave the platform and come down? I want to look in their faces. That's why I do that. I want to look in their faces. He wants enough of that. And thirdly, God speaks to us on special occasions and in special meetings. That's what we have coming up. You know, about two, three Wednesdays ago, really, I guess might have been three. I think these people know when it's my day off. But Will Galkin called me. Just kind of already three weeks out or whatever, thinking about Calvary and wanting to hear a little bit about what we had in mind because I'd emailed him and responded to some information he gave us about different things he can present and different emphases that he might have when he's here. We talked about this in staff planning and I was communicating in that email to him my burdens for what I thought our church might need in these meetings, not telling him what to preach, but just saying, look, you've got these formats, you've got these different messages, here's where I think maybe we need to go. You pick a message you have that fits with that, but this is kind of how I think we need to go. You find the message. You preach the message that God leads you to preach. I got off the phone, and I, I was just encouraged. These videos brought tears to my eyes because I know he's going to be here, God willing, seven days from now, right in this pulpit. We'll be able to hear God's servant We'll be able to hear the messages that have been preached and honed as he passes from churches to churches, churches to church, and senses the need that local churches have. Do you know that there's Old Testament precedent, a lot of it, biblical precedent for what we're doing in these meetings? I don't have a lot of time left, but I want to point you to three examples. We're not going to tarry with them, so please don't become too excited or worried, but would you join me? by going back several books just to Second Chronicles, start turning back. Don't big, dig out too big a heap of pages, but just keep going back. You'll find Second Chronicles not far away. These verses come from the time of Josiah. We're in chapter number 34. What's going on? Well, it's about 1158 on the clock for Israel, for Judah. Not much time left. You've already had this wicked king Manasseh. God has already said that he's bringing his judgment. But you have a man who comes to the throne by the name of Josiah, and he is the last of the great revival kings of Judah. There are three. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. He's the last one, and he appears at 1158. You know why? Because God always has some time and still keeps pleading with us even at the last minute. And so his reforms begin to take place, and they begin to clean up the rubble in the temple where Manasseh had just discontinued the worship of the temple and closed the place down, and there was filth and all kind of things in there, and the priests were backslidden. And Josiah is leading them in this. And I want you to see verse number 34 because the point that I'm trying to make to you is this, that whenever, this is the example, this is the precedent we're going by, this is what's happened all down through time that whenever God's leaders were burdened by God's people, by, were burdened by God, they always called God's people together to wait upon the Lord. And so sure enough, verse 29, here it is. Look at this, Second Chronicles 34, verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah. You see, because what had happened when they were cleaning out all of this rubble, they found the book of the law. Can you imagine losing the word of God? But they had, and they found the book of the law, and the king has read this, and he's torn his clothes because he realizes how imminent God's judgment is. 
And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Every time God's leader became burdened for God's people and God's work, he called the people together to hear the burden that God had given. Turn a couple of pages now to the book of Ezra. You just a book over. And you find Ezra doing the very same thing. It's just example after example after example you can find in the Old Testament. Ezra chapter 8. So what's going on now? Well, Ezra's got a people, a group of people he's going to take back. The exile is going to take them back. He told the king about all this. King said, do you want some soldiers? He said, no, God will watch over us. Now look at the other side. Look at the inside story. Look at the back story. Then I proclaimed, verse 21, a fast at the river Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before God to seek him in a right way for us for, from him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance for I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king saying the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him so we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. You see the pattern? Every time there's a burden, the leader calls God's people together that God might speak to them corporately. And one more example, just turn the page over to Nehemiah, and this time we're going to chapter 8 again. Nehemiah does the same thing. Verse 1, and all the people were gathered all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. You complain about our service going long. Before the men and women and those that could understand and all the ears of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Over in chapter 9 verse 1, a little later in the month, now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. What a wonderful thing it is when God's people assemble when God's people are determined to seek his face, when God's people are determined to hear the burden of God's servant and open their hearts in honesty and in genuineness. Not the Coke machine God that you just put your money in. And, Dear God, I'm in trouble. Come to me and help me and get me out of this mess. And the moment God does that, we're so long gone. There's a little bit of hypocrisy really enveloped in that. Just glad for God's mercy that so many times he still meets us in our time of need. Because he's long-suffering. I will tell you this in closing. To be sure, it's an inconvenience and an outlay of time and energy. You'll have meetings each weeknight, 7 o'clock. I myself, I'll just tell you, I, 
There's a difference between being 64 and 35. I can run pretty good during the day, get tired at night. If you're running all day long and then back to services at night for church, well, you do the same thing, right? You're running all day long. Even those of you who are tired seem to find lots of stuff to keep yourself busy. You're running all day long and then you have something at night. It's tiring. There's absolutely no question about it. It's an inconvenience. But if we would inconvenience ourselves for anyone, couldn't it be God? It will be our way if we commit in our hearts to be here as often as we can. It will be our way to show God that we are in earnest, that we are sincere, that if we come to God on many an occasion and ask God, if we cry out to God, we're willing to be in a position for God to cry out to us and speak to us. An American historian by the name of Roger Babson, I, you probably are not familiar with him. I don't think he's super well known, but nevertheless, the story comes from 100 or more years ago, but the historian was visiting Argentina and had an audience with the president of Argentina. And the president said to the historian, you are a student of history. Will you please tell me why it is that South America with her limited, unlimited resources and having been settled before or earlier than North America has nevertheless been made much slower progress in civilization and material prosperity. Do you see the question he's asking? You might still ask it, actually. There's several answers, but this one's interesting. Mr. Babson turned the question around to the president and said, Mr. President, you evidently have studied the question yourself, and I would be interested to know your answer to it. The president said this. He thought the explanation lay in the fact that South America was settled by Spaniards who came seeking gold, while North America was settled by the Pilgrim Fathers who came seeking God. There's some truth there. It's not all the truth, but there's some truth there. When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek.